Well, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke. And for some of you who've been gone for the summer, we've been going through it, of course, as always, verse by verse, passage by passage. We're now into chapter 10. We're at the turning point of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Most of this time he's been in the northern part of Israel showing that he indeed is the Messiah and the Savior. How does he do this? By his words and works, by his message and his miracle. Miracles. Well, he has made a change. He is now heading to Jerusalem. Why would he do that? Because he's going to go there to die and rise again to pay for sin and to conquer death. He's going to provide the way of salvation because he is the Savior of the world. Well, we ended last time when he had sent out 70 of his disciples and they came back and, and he went sent them out to ministry. They come back and they've got great joy and they're all excited. And as we look at our passage this morning, as we continue, we're going to see several things. First of all, we're going to look at this. We're going to see praise from Jesus because he's going to praise the Father for what's going on. And he's going to also talk to the disciples and he's going to remind them of the privilege that they have of these disciples, all that they're getting to see and to do. Then the second thing is we're going to do is we're going to see the story of the Good Samaritan. And as I said earlier, everybody, when you hear Good Samaritan, you think, okay, it's, it's the, the point of the Good Samaritan is to teach us how to treat other people. That's in there. But it all begins because this religious leader asks a question, how to have eternal life? And we're going to see how that fits because it's powerful. And as we study this morning, we want to see carefully the interchange between Jesus and this religious leader concerning the whole issue of salvation as we look at this famous story. So there's some great things there. Well, as we begin, I have to tell you a story, and this happened to me, and it's true. And of course, I've been here for 22 years, so some of you've heard this story. But the first year I, w- I went to I went to Dallas Seminary, and uh, I got there in August, and I got a job. I was working for a State Farm agent, and about the first, this is about the second week that I was there, I had this desk in the front of the office, and then there's this big, you know, glass window you could see out, and there's a road going down that way. I could see directly down a road, and then there was a road right in front of this. It was a really tough part of town in Dallas, so it was sort of not a good neighborhood in that sense. And so I'd sit at that desk, and you could look out and see everything. About the second week I was there, I, I looked out, and I saw, I saw, I looked down the street, and I saw this man, he was lying in the street. And, and, and I could see people going like this. They just walked by, you know, and I, and I looked at the lady who works with me, and I looked back, and I said, I think there's a man, I think there's a man in the street. She said, yeah, yeah, he, he's around here a lot. And I thought, he's just, he's laying out in the street. So, you know, I, I just looked at her. I said, I better go down there. And she said, he, he's around here a lot. I said, yeah, I know. So I got out and I walked. I kind of ran down the street. I had, a, I had a coat and tie, so I took my coat off and I had my clothes on that I was dressed for work. And I got down there and there was this man. He was just laying in the street. He was a little old man and, and uh, he had no shirt on, no shoes. He had on some blue jean looking clothes. And, and, and I got there and, I, you know, people walked past. I said, I looked down at him and he went, help me. And I didn't know what to do. You know, I thought that I better help him. He's asking for help. So I, I started trying to pick him up and I, I got him up. And I mean, it was hot as August. And I'd be honest with you, he smelled terrible. It was ter- and his pants kept falling off. And I kept having to pull his pants back up. And, and you know, and, and about that time she had called the ambulance. The ambulance came and the police came. And, and, and the policeman looked at me and he said, yeah, we, we, we pick this man up a lot. I mean, he's always around here. And so I... Walked back to the office, and of course I was—I mean, I was—I had to go home because change clothes because I was just drenched. And I thought, what, what are you supposed to do? What, what are you supposed to do? Because everybody said, "Well, he's here all the time." This morning, we see a story about about a man who was robbed and beaten. Jesus tells this parable, this story, and and some passed him by, and one helped him. It's the famous story that we call the Good Samaritan. 
And so what are we to do? And, and who is our neighbor? And are we to help? And, but as we look at this passage, we're going to see it's more, it's more than that. It's more than just saying, okay, let's go help our neighbors. Because we're going to find that, that not only is it truth about helping others, but the key goes back to the truth about salvation. Because of the question that is asked. We find that in this story, there's a religious leader asked what he can do to have eternal life. And we're going to see how it fits in the passage this morning. So I hope that as you read the Good Samaritan in the future, you might think of it just a little bit differently. So let's see how it fits. Let's begin. Jesus has set his face, as it says, to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go die and pay for sin and rise again and conquer death. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. We should never forget why he came. Well, Jesus has just, he sent out the 12, 12 apostles. They came back. Now he's just sent out 70 disciples, and they've come back, and they've come back with great joy. Look at chapter 10. Look at verse 17. It says, The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, they came back and they had great joy because the ministry was going great and they were representing Jesus Christ and then he had given them power. But notice what Jesus says. Here's the key. Verse 20. This is where we ended last week. Notice it says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Now what he's saying is this. Listen, I know it's great to come back and talk about the ministry, but the bottom line, the great thing of joy is to know that you have eternal life, to know that your name is written in heaven. And, and you know, in heaven there is a book of life. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20, and there is the book of life. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ has their name written in the book of life. And what he's saying to them is, look, you can rejoice about ministry and everything else, but the key thing to rejoice the fact is that you have eternal life, that your name is written in heaven, that your name is written in the book of life. And I hope and pray that every one of you, you could say, you know, God's used me to do this or I'm having fun doing this and what great joy. But the greatest joy of all is to know that you have eternal life and that's simply by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, from here we're going to see really two things. And I'm, I'm gonna, let me break down the passage for you. Two things this morning. First of all, the joy of the Savior because he has joy because they come back and they're all excited. In verses 21 through 24, he praises God. He, he talks about revealing the Father and the Son and all of this. And then he talks about what blessings they have. Then we get to the part that's so famous, the story of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to see that uh, the Samaritan raises, a, I mean, the uh, religious leader raises a question concerning eternal life. Jesus, we see the answer, and then he raises a second question, who is my neighbor? And then we see the illustration, which is the famous story of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to see how all that fits together. Well, notice, Jesus is responding. The 70 have come back. They're all excited. Look what he does. Verse 21, Jesus says this. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to the infants or to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Now, he's rejoicing. He has great joy. Why? Because he realized these 70 had gone out and they were faithful. They understood the message and the ministry. They've come back and they're all excited. I want you to understand something, that as a whole, when Jesus went out or when some of the people he sent out, they did not come back always with joy because many times people rejected the message of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 11, it says... Jesus came into his own, his own people, and his own received him not. As a whole, the nation of Israel did not accept Christ, did not accept Jesus. So he's rejoicing that he sent these 70 out, and they came back with great joy, and everything was going good. And notice what he says, hey, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He's talking to the Heavenly Father, who is the sovereign ruler over all things. And then he says this, you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Now what he's saying is this, the whole truth about salvation and ministry... 
The, the, the wise, the wise of this world missed it because they reject God and His Word. And he says, and the babies are the ones that got it. And the bottom line is this. The truth is, God, the truth of Jesus Christ and salvation in the Bible can be understood by anybody, by the little ones. And he's saying, you've hidden it from the wise, the wise of this world, but you've revealed it to the infants. And the bottom line is, God, bottom line, God makes his truth known and anybody can understand it, even the little ones. And there's some people that come up to me and they say, you know, I've talked to my son, he's six years old, and I say, you know, he says he wants to go to heaven, and we talk about it. I say, do you, you, you sent, oh yeah, I've, I know I've done wrong. Uh, do you believe in Jesus as your Savior? Yes. Do you believe he'll take you to heaven? Yes. Is there anything you can do? No. And then they come to me and say, do you think he understands? Of course he understands. Even a child can understand it because it takes what kind of faith? Childlike faith. And what he's saying in this passage is, I'm thankful that God's truth can be made known to anyone, even the babies. Now, he's not saying, I'm really happy that these wise, intelligent ones missed it. No, he's saying that these ones who think they're wise in this world oftentimes do miss it because... They just don't want to know the things that God has for them. They, the so-called wise miss the truth and they miss the message in the ministry. But he's saying even the little ones can understand. And that should help all of us because we can share our faith. And a little, little one, bigger ones, it doesn't matter. People can understand the truth of the message of salvation. How do we come to God? In humility, we come as a child, not in our wisdom, not in our strength, but we come trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Well, after that, then he's going to talk about the idea of revealing the Father and the Father revealing Him. Notice what he says. Verse 22, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one, who knows, the, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Well, it's a little bit hard, but what he's saying is this. First of all, all things have been handed to me by the Father. The Father has given to Jesus the ministry to come to this earth as the Messiah and the Savior. He's saying, I've come representing the Father, and I've come to to show who I am and to give the way of eternal life. He says nobody knows the Son except from the Father and nobody knows the Father except from the Son. What he means from that is, who is it that sent the Son into the world? The Father did. The Father is the one who has revealed the Son to the world. He sent Jesus into this world to die for us and that's how we know Him. But who is the one who reveals the Father? It's the Son. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father, I and the Father are one. John chapter 1 talks about that, that, that Jesus Christ has revealed the Father. So the bottom line is, the Father reveals the Son by sending Him to the world, and the Son reveals the Father by being the representative of the true God. That's why in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So, bottom line, all he's saying really in verse 22 is, the Father sent me to do this, and how, do we, how does anybody know about the Son? Because the Father sent him. How does anybody know the Father? Because the Son reveals him. And that's the bottom line. You know, it's so amazing. When Jesus was on the earth, he would say he's God, and he is God. And people would understand that, and he would call himself the Son of God, which they all knew that meant that he's God. And he represented the Father and revealed the Father. And so he would say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, from this, Jesus turns to his disciples in private. Now, he's had all these people back, 70 people are there, a big crowd is there. He turns from the crowd, and he's going to talk directly to his guys. Look what he does, verse 23. Turning to the disciples, he said privately... Blessed are the eyes 
which see the things you see. Now, the word blessed literally means happy. He says, happy, you ought to be happy because you're seeing the things that you see. You know, what have these people seen? They saw the Messiah. You realize that these guys walked around with Jesus. They watched him heal people. They watched him raise people from the dead. They watched him change the water to wine. They watched him walk on the water. They saw him teach. They, and they heard him teach. They saw all of these things. And, and they are seeing it. And he's saying, you know, you're really blessed to get to see the things you see. Now, all of us would say, wouldn't it have been great to get to walk around with Jesus? To see him? To actually sit at his feet and to hear him teach? Now, one of these days we will. One of these days we'll be with him. We'll get to be with him and we'll go, oh, this is great. But they did. And he said, you know what? Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. You're getting to see it. They have seen him in the flesh. They walk with him. They ate with him. They've seen his works. They've heard his message. But notice the next verse. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. He says there are many people in the past, prophets and kings, who really would love to see and hear the things you're getting to hear. I mean, just go back. Go back to Adam and Eve. When, when they fell and God the Father said to them, the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent, they did not live to see the seed of the woman. See, the woman's Jesus. They didn't live. Abraham was told, Abraham, through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed because the Messiah is coming through you. Abraham never saw it. Isaac never saw him. Jacob never saw him. Judah never saw him. David, David sitting down on the throne of Israel, was told by Nathan the prophet that he would have a son who would be the Messiah and sit on the throne. David never saw him. Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61 wrote of all the signs and everything the Messiah is going to do and never saw it. Prophets and kings, he says, prophets and kings wish to see what you see and they didn't see them and to hear the things you hear and they didn't hear them. Because see, that generation, those guys with Jesus got to see it. And if you just said to Isaiah, would you like to see the Messiah? Oh yeah, I'd like to, I've, I've just written about him. I'd like to see him. Well, you won't get to. Not now. But these others did. And Jesus said, you know, you guys are so blessed to get to see what you see and hear what you hear. Because there have been prophets and kings throughout history who wanted to see this and wanted to hear this. It's powerful. Now, think about us. We rejoice in the fact that we got something even better than this. We've got the entire Word of God. When Jesus was on the earth, there was no New Testament. You realize that the first book written in the New Testament was the book of James written in about 45. That's about 12 or 13 years after Jesus walked on the earth. So none of these guys, as, as they went on, some of them actually got to write some of the books of the New Testament, but it was all the way to the year 95 when John wrote the final book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, that the entire Scripture was put together. We can rejoice in the fact that we have the entire New Testament, the entire Scripture. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We get to be His representatives. So Jesus looks at those guys and said, you guys ought to realize how blessed you are because they're people all from the past, all the prophets, all the kings. They really wanted to see what you see and they never got to see it. And they really wanted to hear what you hear and they've never got to hear it. Wow. Now, the best that we can tell, Jesus has been talking to his people privately. There's a crowd. The best we can tell, the next event happens in the flow we're going to see that probably Jesus turns back to the crowd, and in that crowd there's a religious leader called a lawyer, which was a scribe, and he's going to raise a question. He's going to say, i got a question for you. Because see, sometimes people would come to Jesus and they'd say, i got a question for you. 
And sometimes they were really sincere about their questions, and sometimes they were trying to trick him. Let's see what happens, because this is the part that takes us into what we call the, the Good Samaritan of that story. And, and two things. Let me, let me give you this. The religious leader is going to stand and ask a question. He's going to actually ask two questions. Here's the first question. He's going to ask, what could he do to have eternal life? Now, he actually says it this way. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you have to look at this question very carefully, because what he's asking is... What do I do? What do I need to do so I can inherit salvation? He's not asking, how does a person have salvation? He's asking, what can I do to have salvation? And then the second question he's going to ask is, who is his neighbor? And it all ties together. First question deals with eternal life. The second question deals with, okay, who's my neighbor? That I, and we'll see why he raises that thing. There's some great truths here to know and apply. And we'll get more detail in just a second. Look at verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a lawyer, uh, that it doesn't mean like a lawyer today, maybe trying cases. This was a person who was skilled in the Scripture. They studied the Bible. They copied the Bible. They were sometimes known as scribes. If you had a Bible question in that time, you would go to this guy. And you'd say, listen, I know you know Scripture. Would you tell me what does the Bible have to say about this? And they would look through their scrolls and they would find you what they thought was the answer. So this man, let me tell you something. He thinks he knows the Bible. He's not asking Jesus a question like, I need some help. What must I do to gain salvation? You know what? He thinks he already knows. And he's trying to trick Jesus. Notice the verse. And the law, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. The word test there means to test, to trip, to test, to trick up. He wants Jesus to trip up because, see, these religious leaders didn't like Jesus. People were following Jesus all over the place. The religious leaders were looking bad, so they wanted Jesus to look bad. If they could somehow figure out a way that Jesus would mess up. So he thinks, i got an idea. I'm going to ask him this question. I know the answer to the question. I'm going to ask him the question. And so, look at the question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, be careful because he's not saying, how is a person saved? He's saying, what must I do? See, now he thinks he already knows the answer. Now, if you turned to him and said, what do you think the answer is? He would say, it's to keep the commandments. It's to obey the law. See, the religious leaders thought that doing good and trying to obey the law would give them life. People think the same thing today. We could go downtown Stillwater, stop people on the street and say, let me ask you a question. What do you think it takes for a person to be able to go to heaven? And many people would say, well, you have to live a good life and you, you, know, you have to try to keep the Ten Commandments and you know, uh, get baptized, maybe go to church. That's what a lot of people think. They think it's something you do. These religious leaders thought keeping the commandments that God had given would be the way. Now the problem is... There were over 600 commandments, and they couldn't keep them, and they knew that. But watch what happens. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, the question is not how does a person say but he's asking what could he do? Now, if you remember, this is the same question that the rich young ruler came to Jesus. You remember the story? Rich young ruler comes up to, rich, uh, young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and said, why could you call me good? There's only one good that's God. So you can't call me good unless you recognize I'm God. That's number one. Number two, oh, you want to know what you can do? And then Jesus starts naming some of the Ten Commandments. He names five or six of the Ten Commandments. 
don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. And he looks at the guy and he says, what do you think? And the guy goes, oh, I, I've, I've kept all that since I was a little boy. And nobody's kept any of it. Jesus knew that. So Jesus said, okay, well, you've kept it all perfectly. There's only one thing you lack. Just give everything away and follow me because I know God's first in your life if you've kept the Ten Commandments because the very first commandment is that, you know, you'll have no other God or anything above me. So money doesn't mean anything to you. So get rid of all your money and follow me. He wanted the guy to realize that he hadn't kept the Ten Commandments. And the guy looked at him and went, I don't think I'm doing that. See? So he asked the exact same question this guy asked. This guy's not asking, how is a person saved? Because the answer is by faith in Christ. He's answering, what must I do to gain eternal life? And if you're going to do it, you know what you can do? If, you, if any one of you in this room said, what must I do to be able to get saved, to, 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 to be saved by what I do, then I'd say, just have to keep all the laws and everything perfectly. Just keep it perfectly. And you would say, well, I, I can't do that. That's right. That's why you need a Savior. Here's the question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Wow. Now, Jesus knows everything, right? He knows exactly why the guy's asking the question. He knows the guy thinks he knows the answer already. So what does Jesus do? Look what Jesus said to him. And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Jesus says, well, you know the Bible. What's written in the Bible? How does it read to you? What do you think the answer is? He asked the guy to answer the question. Because he knows that the guy thinks he knows. Well, what is the answer? Well, it's to keep the law perfectly and you'll have life. Look what the guy says. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now he goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is called the Shema passage. It says, Hear, O hear, Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Every Jewish man got up in the morning, and they quoted that every day. It's called the Shema, because the Hebrew word for hear is Shema. So they go, Shema, Shema, o Israel. And they quote that passage. So Jesus said, wait a minute, you know the Bible. If you want to know how that what you would do to gain eternal life, you tell me. What does it say? And he quotes Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Remember they came to Jesus that one time? And they said to him, what's the, what's the top commandment out of the 618 commandments? 613, so sorry, I knew how you counted. What's the top one? And Jesus said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second one's equal to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the exact same answer. Those are the commandments. Now, you know what? Nobody's ever kept the commandments. So he says, you shall do all of this. And what does Jesus say? Well, you'd think Jesus might look at him and go, you idiot. You know you can't keep that. Nobody can keep that. What does Jesus say to him? And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, keep these commandments, and you will live. If you want to gain eternal life by what you do, you must keep the commandments perfectly, and you will live. Now, what the man should have said is, Whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I just realized what I'm saying here. There's no way you can do this because you can't love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and then your neighbor as yourself. You can't, I mean, that's, you can't do that. What this man should have done is responded to Jesus and say, wait a minute, I just realized what I'm saying. You can't do that. 
I can't inherit eternal life. I can't do anything to gain eternal life. And that's when Jesus would have said, that's exactly right. You must believe in me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But the guy didn't say that. Watch what he does. See, I want you to remember that the law can't save us. The law shows us that we're sinners and that we need a Savior. The law cannot be a means of saving us. The law is just a big sign saying you're going the wrong way. Jesus is the one who sets us free. Now let me ask you a question before we get into this. How do people respond to law? How do people respond when they realize they can't keep it? Notice this. Number one, sometimes people realize that they fall short and they need a Savior. All of you in this room who trusted in Christ, there came a point in your life when you realized you were not good enough, that you had sinned and you fall short of God's glory and you couldn't save yourself and you needed a Savior and you trusted in Jesus. Some people, when they look at law and they see that, they look at some areas and ignore others. They say, I think I can do this part, but I'm not going to do this part, so I'm going to forget about that part and I'm just saying I'm concentrating on this and I'll be okay. And then third, sometimes people actually want to change the requirements. They look at it and they say, I don't think I can do that, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to change it a little bit. This is what this guy's going to do. Because he's going to raise a second question. And before we see it, look how he answers. Verse 29, but wishing to justify himself. See, he already knows he can't keep the law. So in order to justify himself, he then said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now he figures, I don't know about this all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and all that. I don't know about it. But when it comes to neighbors, I know there's no way that I'm going to love every neighbor that there is. So that's impossible. So what I need to do is change the requirements. And I really want to know who are the neighbors I got to really love and take care of. Because surely it's not everybody. And so he thinks to justify himself... He comes back to Jesus and says, well, who is my neighbor? What a question. What he should have said is, I, I, wait a minute, I can't do this. This is not possible. But then he says, wishing to justify himself, he said, who is my neighbor? And watch what Jesus does. He tells the famous story. We'll go through it very quickly because you know the story. Verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and he went away, leaving him half dead. Now, this man was going from Jericho, going down from, Jer from Jerusalem to Jericho. I want you to understand something. Whenever you read the Bible, Jerusalem is the capital city, and it's the holy city. You always go down from Jerusalem, and you always go up to Jerusalem. He's going down from Jerusalem. Even though he's going east, he's going to Jericho. So anytime you see the Scripture, you always go up to Jerusalem and down from Jerusalem. This man is going down to Jericho. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among some robbers. That means as he was walking along, all of a sudden they jumped on him. They stripped him. They took his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. The word half dead, this is the only place it's used in the, in the Scripture, and it means to look like you're dead. Not dead, but look like you're dead. So they just left him there. It's a pretty terrible thing. Notice, and by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, we all know who the priests are. They were, the priests were the descendants of Aaron. They were the ones that offered the sacrifices. They were the main people in the temple. They were considered the holy people. Sometimes you'd go to them and they, they would look at the Bible and they would give you instructions. And so the priests were supposed to be the best ones. But as the priest was walking down the road and he saw that man and he went, Oh my, I'm getting, getting over here because see, I, I'm not going to touch that man. You know why I'm not going to touch that man? Because see, I'm a priest. 
And if I touch that dead body, because he looks dead to me, if I touch that body, I'll be unclean. And so I've got to get to the temple. i got a job to do. And see, my job is more important than this person. So I'm going by him because I'm not touching him because I don't want to get unclean. Verse 32, likewise a Levite also when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now Levites were the tribe of Levi. All the priests were from the tribe of Levi, but they were descendants of Aaron. Levites who weren't descendants of Aaron also got the help in the temple, but they weren't the priest. So here's a Levite who also walks and he goes, oh boy, I'm not going to touch that guy because you know why? Why am I going to touch this guy? Because I don't want to become unclean because if I'm unclean, see, i got to go serve in the temple. And I, my job is more important than this person. And then, verse 33, but a contrast. A Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Now we know the Samaritans were the half-Jew, half-Gentiles. They were despised. If you had a Jew and a Samaritan standing by each other, they would look at each other and the Jew would say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And the Samaritan would say, well, you don't like me, I don't like you. And here's the Samaritan, and most likely this was a Jewish man that had been beaten, coming from from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And this Samaritan came by and when he saw him, he felt Compassion. See, the Levite and the priest didn't feel any compassion. They were worried about their jobs. They didn't stop. It's like that day, I I saw people passing by, and I know they were busy. But do you pass by somebody laying in the street? And the Levite said, I'm not getting my hands dirty. And the priest said, I'm not getting unclean for whoever this may be. But the Samaritan said, look at that man. He had compassion. And he came up to him, verse 34, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, put him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, took care of him. An inn was a place that travelers would go. It's not like a holiday inn, not really a nice place, but because sometimes people just need the place to stop and they'd put their animals out to the side. There were places for the people to lay down. And so he brings him there. And then it says on the next day he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages, and he gave him to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I'll repay you. He said, listen, i got enough for two days. Uh, take care of him. If it's more than two days, when I get back, if you have to spend more than that on taking care of this guy, when I come back, I'll pay you whatever I owe you. So then we come to the big question. Which proved to be the neighbor? Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Jesus is showing how to be a neighbor, more or less than who is a neighbor. But I want you to notice the answer. And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now I want you to notice something about the verse. This religious leader can't even bring himself to say in the word Samaritan. He just says, the one who showed mercy toward him. And what did Jesus tell him to do? Go and do the same. Who's your neighbor? Anybody that comes across 
your path. And what Jesus wanted this guy to realize is that he could not love the Lord his God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength and love every neighbor. He could not do it. If he was going to have eternal life by what he could do, the answer is, you can't do it. And what Jesus really wanted him to say is, I can't do all this. And Jesus said, that's right. That's why you need a Savior. Doesn't tell us what happened. It just ends. Now, there's no doubt about this passage that, that it teaches that you cannot have eternal life by what you do. It also does show us that those that God brings across our path, we need to have compassion. There are times it is inconvenient to help somebody else. There are times in our lives that we're going to say, I don't have time for this. But when God brings people across your path, there may be the times that you're going to have to say, I'm stopping what I'm doing and I'm helping. Why else would God bring them across my path? As we realize this passage, two things stand out. Number one, you cannot keep the law for eternal life. That's what the guy wanted to do. Keep the commandments. Keep love of the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. Love your neighbors yourself. Jesus said, fine, that's right. That's exactly right. Just do it. You can do it and you can live. Can't do it. That's why you can't live that way. Second thing from there is how do we love our neighbor? And that's we love those. We show compassion as they come across. John Wesley said something about this idea about keeping the law for eternal life. He said, when people think they can be good for eternal life, they do not realize the standard. It is perfection and completeness of the law in all points. What have we seen? Jesus praised God because these disciples understood about ministry and He sent them out and He talked about He revealed the Father and the Father revealed Him and He talked about the blessings of these disciples. And then the religious leader asked the question, what can I do to have eternal life? And He said, what do you think? And the guy said, well, I think it's keeping the law. I think it's loving God and loving your neighbor. And Jesus said, you're exactly right. Right on. Just do it. And the guy said, in mine, his mind, he says, there's no way I can do that. I can't love every neighbor. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to change it. Just who is my neighbor? He thought he'd narrow it down a little bit. And Jesus told the story. And the neighbor is anybody that comes across your path. The law can't save. Now, let me give you some applications and we'll think through it. First, we, can, we know God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus revealed the Father. That's A. I mean, think about it. Jesus reveals the Father to mankind. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. We know about God the Father through Jesus Christ. Here's a great truth. B. Anyone, even the simple, the little, the small, can come to know and understand. That's why he says, I thank God, I praise God, that the simple, the babies, the little ones can understand the truth. In the first service, we had uh, six or seven Six, seven, or eight people who got baptized a couple of Sunday nights ago, maybe last Sunday night, um, and and we we want as their testimony that they had trusted in Jesus Christ, and we had them come up just a while ago to get some baptism certificates at the very end of the first service, and some of them are right here. They know Jesus Christ as Savior. They have trusted in Him alone. See, even the little ones can know. See, these disciples were so blessed to see and hear the Messiah. 
out of all the people that's ever lived, they were the ones that got to be with him on his earthly ministry. Wow. Number two, the law cannot save. If anybody you talk to and they say, what do I need to do to get salvation? What do I need to do? What can I do? They're asking the wrong question. They can't do anything. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ and it comes simply by faith. You cannot be good enough, do good enough, anything to have salvation. It's impossible. God's law shows the problem. God's grace provides the solution. Jesus is the Savior. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. The final thing I want you to think about is, as believers in God's power, we're to love God and others. Now, when we say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and your mind and strength and your neighbor yourself, that's impossible in your own strength. But as one who belongs to Jesus Christ, because we have God's power, we can do that. A, all people are to be loved and respected. It doesn't matter whether they're old. It doesn't matter whether they're drunkards. It doesn't matter whether they're drug addicts. It doesn't matter where they are. All people are to be loved and respected. B, our neighbor is anybody crossing our path. Maybe today. Maybe today. On the way to lunch, somebody crosses your path. And you may say, I'm, I'm in a hurry to lunch. Or you may say, God would have me show compassion. See, we must meet the needs of others. May we be faithful to love God and love others in God's power. Because see, in your own strength, it's impossible. See, that's why for an unbeliever to say, I'm going to do those things and I will gain salvation, impossible. For a believer who has the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness. It's there. That's how we can love God and love others because it's God's power through us. May we be faithful to love God and love others, meeting needs in God's power, proclaiming salvation only in Jesus Christ. He is the one who reveals the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a passage. Thank you for these truths. Thank you, Lord, that when Jesus came, He is the one that makes known what God is like. And even the simple can know the truth of salvation and what blessings the disciples had. And, and we have blessings because we got the Word of God. Lord, we realize that the law can't save. And, and for a person to say, what can I do to get saved? What can I do? The answer is you can't do anything because you can't keep the law. You can't be good enough. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, that salvation. And thank you, Lord, that in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can love you and love others. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. Help us to understand them and make application in our lives. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.